Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible? Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance. We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids. We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something. It should be an excellent school in every community. Enjoy the show. And my name is Scott Lewis. And I'm Laura Cohn. Hi, Laura. Hello, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Yeah? I'm enjoying some of the clouds and rain that are coming coming down on us. Is it raining? Not at the moment. Oh, <laughs> you got me excited. <laughs> I... Uh, it's supposed to. <laughs> Are you, how's the school year going? Halloween? Are you guys get kids do still do Halloween costumes all that? No, they're sort of aging out of they're that. Too cool for that. No, huh? but uh, my daughter's going to homecoming tonight. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> so that's crazy. that's very uh, a little corsage very high and stuff. No, it's oh. not like that. Oh, uh, a little no. less formal. <laughs> very much less formal. No oh. dates or anything along those lines. Really? But. but it's a high school dance. Yeah, that's my my kid has discovered drawing. So he my, huh. my wife's an artist, so he's she's always exposed them to art and like she's extremely good and and he has picked up on it. It's crazy how good he's gotten at these like he'll draw these scenes of like these planes crashing and stuff, these, you know, underwater shipwrecks with like these vampire squid around, all the, all this cool stuff and he, he's gotten really good at it. So when you say he's discovered it, what does what do you mean? Like he just started doing it a lot well, recently? So, or? Yeah, exactly. I, it, you know how um, we're going to discuss later about how kids, when they turn two, you know, like blow up with language and how interesting that is for like neurosciences. Yeah. Well, that, that same sort of thing has happened with drawing. Like all of a sudden he is extraordinary drawing. And I mean, he's, I'm not laughing. I'm not joking. I'm not a good artist, but he is definitely a better drawer than I am. And he's wow. six years old. Yeah. And he... Um, he what was we were doing this thing the other day where I was like trying to explain to him like this planet that was you know on, on now this new planet that's been discovered yeah. in, in next outside to the, of Pluto yeah uh, no no the one closest to uh, our nearest star so it's outside the oh, solar system okay it's called Proxima B and I was telling him how excited it was yeah. I'm a big science uh, or or space nerd right I love okay. that stuff yeah and I was trying to explain it to him and we ended up getting this longer discussion about about uh, the you know solar system and stars and their lives and stuff. And I, I explained to him that, you know, someday the sun is going to get so big, it's going to actually swallow the earth in the ball of fire. And I, you know, I thought maybe he could conceptualize that that wasn't going to happen very t- anytime soon, but I probably should have explained how big a deal like six billion years yeah. is, you know, <laughs> but he was, he was, he was, you should have seen his face. He was looking at me like, what dude? And so I, I, I had to draw, you know, like, oh, wait, wait, it's going to be fine. But we, but he showed me the rocket that we could take to go to this, uh, this oh, other planet. Awesome. So I'm, I, oh, uh, well, what I love about that story is that, um, something clicked in his brain, you know, like uh, some kind of synapse or, yeah. or a group of synapses were formed that, ina- you know, that enabled him to jump to a new level of drawing. Yeah. And so the, this um, interaction between like our life experience and the fact that they're actual um, uh, synapses forming in our brain and new pathways growing and things like that has always been really intriguing to me. So that's the motivation for today's podcast. Yeah. So today we're going to get into the actual chemistry of what we talk about every day, like the actual discussion about um, what is happening in our brain when, when we get good schools for all, right? When we have education, what people, what that means. And it's going to get a little deep, but we have uh, Tim uh, Brown from UC San Diego He's a, a professor of neurosciences there and a very interesting guy who's right on the front edge of this, this discipline of trying to understand what kids 
are actually experiencing in their brains as they're learning and what we might be learning about what's what might take some kids longer or what kids might be struggling with or or what we can do to customize what how they learn so that they can learn better yeah and the fact that we can have this conversation that um we that uh, this conversation is happening is really a direct result of new technology. So it used to be that in order to study brains, we had to wait for people to die and, um, and, uh, you know, cut open the brains and study what we saw in there and then compare that to what behaviors or, um, experiences that person had before they died. So that's a pretty slow way of learning about the brain. And, um, but over the past couple of decades, technologies have developed so that we can actually watch thoughts happening watch pathways that are being activated as we're um having certain experiences or saying certain words or um or or lots of different things and so this has really opened up vast new frontiers and vast new understanding um that has already started to influence education in kind of big ways and then we're going to talk about how it might start to influence actual teaching and learning over Mm -hmm. time yeah so you uh you have pulled out sort of three what you call influences right that you've learned from this right from this discussion and what you've read about it yeah so on 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 at a big level i see brain science as having affected the way we're we're all operating in the education field in three big ways. One of them is our new understanding or our deeper understanding of how fast young brains develop means that um, we recognize that that there's really a critical period of brain architecture um, development happening in our birth to five-year-olds. And therefore we're putting more emphasis, more investment, like, you know, more public preschool programs, for example, and other investments in our youngest children, because now we know that that key activity is happening in the brain during that time. And then a second thing is that we have new understanding about the impact of trauma um, in early childhood on the development of that brain architecture. And so that's got a lot of us thinking both about how to prevent trauma and mitigate trauma in kids so that we can um, help prevent some of those impacts on brain development that trauma can cause. And that's huge. And it's a big, um, it's a, it's a big area of focus in our community, including San Diego Unified. And then finally, um, one that's really current for us right now is that uh, a lot of brain scientists study language and they've shown that uh, those of us who are bilingual, I'm not, but uh, anyway, when you are bilingual, it actually makes your brain stronger and more nimble than people who are monolingual. And so this is influencing how we think about um, English learners and the benefits that would accrue for them brain wise if we help them to continue to be bilingual instead of trying to switch them from their home language into English, monolingual in their home language to monolingual in English, they're losing some opportunity to have stronger, better brains Mm -hmm. when we do that. I'm I'm bilingual. Really? What's your second language? Spanish. Excellent. I studied in Spain for a long time and it's the skill behind, well, there's surfing and speaking Spanish. Those are the two things I'm most proud of as far as skills I've picked up. Yeah. And when did you learn Spanish? Uh, just in college, I started learning. I, I just took a class and realized I loved it. And my professor said, you should go to a country if you really yeah. want to learn it. So I went to Central America for a while and then I went to Spain and then I went to Spain again for a year and a half. So, yeah. So do you have an accent when you speak Spanish? Can people tell you're not a native speaker? Uh, for the first few minutes, I can get away with it in Spain. I have a, a, a Mediterranean look and I, I have the first <laughs> few sentences of a, any kind of greeting in a way that we used to play. We used to ask uh, the girls if they could tell if I was from America or not. And <laughs> after a while, like if I go deep into a conversation, it becomes pretty clear. But yeah. but yeah, I had fun with it for a long time. It was a it was a big deal um, for me. And um, yeah, my brain does feel strong. I'm sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what's interesting about this discussion is like we're learning so much about it, about personalization, but it's, it's parallel to what's happening in you know, all parts of life, right? We're learning about, you know, you can have entertainment sources that are personalized for what you care about. Now, my wife and I, when we watch shows, it's about, it's the show we want to watch when we want to watch it. Like yeah. we, we have a list of things we want to watch and we'll get through it. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's medicine, personalized medicine is now becoming a real thing. You can structure your, your experience with healthcare better. 
or to like tumor treatment, cancer treatment, yeah. customized to your particular, the genome of your particular tumor. Yeah. And, and so with education, we've had to almost triage kids for so long with just the best we could offer as far as the best education possible that whatever resources any village or city or country had to get them up to a certain spot. But, but now we're starting to see that discipline of neuroscientists and, and professors and all that come up with things that we might need to incorporate, right? I hope so. I, th- I think that's going to be really um, a game changer when right. we start to understand brains well enough for particular people that we can customize um, our approach to education for them. Hmm. Even with even without that, personalized learning is now starting to happen around us here in San Diego County. We've got schools, districts and schools, teachers who are... Um, are diagnosing kids' strengths and weaknesses using what they can demonstrate, you know, on tests, basically, and then figuring out how to support them in their weak areas and also help them capitalize on their strong areas. And that's new. Mm -hmm. That's um, only available in the last few years because of um, technology. So we're really on the cusp of something, and this neuroscience coming in will take us to vast new um, vast new levels. On the other hand, uh, there's some basic things we got to get down and we'll talk about some of those too. So first off, what is our number of the week? Our number of the week is actually, I'm, I'm going to give a series of numbers, right. 25% to 70%. To ninety-two percent, and those are the percent of your adult brain. So when when babies are born, their brain weighs just twenty-five percent of what an adult brain would weigh, which kind of makes sense sense to me intuitively. But the second number, seventy percent, doesn't make sense to me intuitively because yeah. by the time that baby is one year old, their brain is seventy percent of its future adult weight. And then by the time they're five years old, their brain is 92% of the adult weight. And then the other cool thing about those numbers is that the weight does not come from the addition of neurons. The number of neurons that you're born with is roughly the same number, same trillions of neurons that you'll have your whole life. It's from the synapses that you're building. So it's the branching out. It's as if your neurons are saplings when you're born, and then they branch out and become um, really complex trees. And it's through that branching out that this huge and rapid growth of the weight of the brain comes from. So you like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's cool. part of what we're, we're wrestling with today, right? Is this, what, at what point is it, you don't want to say too late, but where you cross thresholds of, of, of the windows that you might have to teach things like reading, right? And it, at that point it becomes much harder. Yeah. We're, I mean, I, I there's what is, really complicated about that is that the brain is also really plastic. So when brains get injured, it's, it's amazing, especially for younger, um, humans, for children and younger adults, how adaptable brains are and they can make new pathways around dead parts of the brain after a stroke, for example. So it's, um, it's dangerous it, it, it can be dangerous and inaccurate to talk about windows of opportunity closing, but we can certainly say with confidence that this brain architecture development is happening at an extraordinarily rapid and critical pace in early childhood. And that if, if we, you know, on the one hand, if we enhance that and encourage it and support it, then we'll um, have kids that are thriving. And if, if things get in the way of that, like trauma, um, that, we need to attend to that so that they can get back to the to the business of building their brain architecture. And what is working this week? What's working is home visiting programs across San Diego County. We have um, three major ones. Um, the Nurse Family Partnership, First Five First Steps, and Project Concern International. And what these programs generally do is that they send skilled people, nurses or other um, trained folks, to go to the homes of um, of uh, 
babies and toddlers, mainly those age groups, sometimes pregnant women, and talk to them about child development and um, support them in whatever their needs are. Make sure they've got a, um, a good relationship with a, a doctor and their kids are getting the care that they need. And it's very powerful. Home visiting programs have been shown to have really great long-term impacts on kids' growth. And one of the reasons is because the home visitors talk to parents about brain development and their critical role as caregivers um, in helping the brain to develop well. One of the things that supports um, optimal brain development in youngest children is responsive caregiving. So when the child cries, if, if you respond to to him or her quickly, if you have conversations with your child, if you when they answer questions, if you if you if when they ask questions, if you answer them quickly, all those things support um, optimal brain development, and it's really helpful to parents to understand that just their everyday interactions with kids, reading to them, singing with them, um, cuddling them, and comforting them are actually brain building things that that. Um, that they are doing and that will help their child to thrive. So home visiting is great. It reaches in San Diego County about 3,500 children right now, which is bigger than a lot of other metropolitan areas. But on the other hand, we have about 24,000 low-income kids in San Diego. So um, in an ideal world, we would have many more home visiting um, programs in the region. Got it. Well, this is a part of the show. We'll just take a break for a second and remind you that if you care about some of the reporting and analysis and discussion we do at Voice of San Diego, uh, please go to voicesandiego.org slash donate and uh, consider becoming one of the now 2,100 people who support us in different ways. So that would be very nice. Thank you. Let's move on. We had a great conversation with Tim Brown. We did. He's uh, at UC San Diego. And uh, let me see if I can get this one right. His title is the uh, he's at the center for multimodal imaging and genetics there right? you did it all right good let's hear what uh, what how that went we are joined in the great voice of san diego podcast studio in downtown san diego by tim brown tim brown is assistant professor of neurosciences at the center for multimodal <laughs> i knew what this was going to happen center for multimodal Imaging and Genetics at the University of, C of California, San Diego. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Uh, I love this stuff. We're all excited to have you. First of all, tell us what it is you do, and, and we'll get a little deeper. Sure. Um, so basically, I, I study child brain development, mm -hmm. um, focusing really kind of on preschool years through maybe the college years, but I've done some infant work and some work on young adults. Um, we basically use a whole set of non-invasive tools, anything we can get our hands on to study uh, the anatomy of the growing brain and the physiology of the growing brain. What kind of questions are you trying to find the answer to? A lot of my work has focused on language. So we've looked at, uh, my work in particular has focused on looking at how the brain represents the meanings of words and how that changes over the course of development. Um, We've also looked at things like math calculation, uh, navigational abilities, uh, quite a broad range of things. Okay. And what are you finding out? Um, there's, there's a lot we don't know. Yeah. Uh, uh, but one of the interesting things we found, found out a couple things recently. One of our first big findings that was a little bit splashy was that if you compare grade school kids to college age young adults um, in how they process word meanings, the parts of their brain that participate in that are quite different. And that was big news because the outward behaviors of how those age groups process words are pretty similar. How do you mean? Like what outward behaviors? Um, if you test them on things like word association tasks, mm -hmm. um, things like that where they have to generate novel words, uh, you might give them a noun and say, tell me a verb that goes with this noun. Um, also in free association tasks, things like that. So there's a big focus on spoken language generation. Mm -hmm. um, also, you know, uh, say fifth graders, for example, their spontaneous speech is very fluent, right? They have relatively large vocabularies, um, things like that. Hmm. So what differences do you see in their brains? So the the long and short of it is that we found a significant and systematic greater participation in the children 
of low-level brain regions uh, that are related to fundamental sensory processes, so particularly visual areas in kids. And so um, what it, there are several sort of modalities that we've used to test this in kids. We've recorded their brain activity using different kinds of machines and things um, because you don't want it to be specific to the tool, which is an issue. And um, for example, um, if you have a child perform a task that focuses on word meanings and they have just concrete nouns like dog, things like that, we find that children use visual regions that adults don't use. And we think that what this represents is at younger ages, the words are anchored in sensory perceptual processes. And the brain's actually coding the meanings of these words using neurons that actually code for low-level things like luminance and contrast, you know, visual properties. And as you age, the word dog becomes sort of um, separated from that anchor and more abstracted. So you, you, are you saying you literally move it to a different part of your brain? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's cool. So <laughs> in other words, let me try to get this lower level. You're saying when you're a kid and you learn the word dog, you're literally thinking of it in this very primal like way of like, I need to react to that word as maybe a threat or, a, or something basic. I, I think that's right. And I, I think it's important to point out we're making an inference about the psychological process. Sure. Right. Based on the image maps that we make. And you have to be careful about those inferences. But that's right. We have every reason to believe that, you know, if you think about it, 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 it it seems true, right? Um, dog is one of the first words that that toddlers learn. Mm -hmm. They often there's a dog in the house, right? And sometimes it seems to be mapped to like a negative emotional experience, right? Mm -hmm. And as toddlers begin to speak and use spontaneous speech, they often call the cat the dog too, right? Mm -hmm. So they overgeneralize. So they, there seems to be this developmental progression in concepts. And we think it's related to this, right? So you, 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 dog may be a purely negative thing when you first hear it as a baby because you got scared or something, right? So in grade school kids, it's different. It's usually not like that. And they seem to refer to the same objects, right? They know what a dog is. Yeah. But you will see these subtleties in the behavior that suggest um, that it's more in their brain. It's more strongly anchored to low-level processes. I can give you an example. Um, now, this, this is anecdotal. We haven't done this study yet. But what I've done with colleagues at work is I've asked them, tell me about an apple. And these are all adults. And they tend to say things like, and I've done some statistics on this, uh, they tend to say things like fruit very early, right, in their explanation. In a fourth, fifth grader, they know what an apple is. They've, they've heard and said this word for years. They often don't get there until very, very late in the conversation. Hmm. Early in the conversation, they tend to say things like red, mm -hmm. which is not which is not See, true of all apples. First, that's right? the first thing I thought when you well, said this. So that's why I said, yeah, I'm the same way. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I always I always think like tasty. Yeah, or, I was like sweet. But yeah, <laughs> so in these in these little studies that I've done, yeah. sort of in in you know anecdotally. It seems to be true, and we need to do a larger scale study because yeah. obviously there are individual differences. It's based largely on your experience. But uh, a very skeptical colleague who had a toddler girl, um, I, I asked him this, and you know, he kind of uh, he, he's a computer guy, and so he's interested but skeptical. So I asked him to go home, and I said, "Put a tape, put put your your daughter on a tape recorder, and ask her what an apple is." And I, again, this is just, this is cherry picking evidence, yeah. but this is the one guy I had this do with this. And, uh, and he sat her down with his wife and, you know, and, and she was three at the time. So she's very distractible. You know, he said, so, you know, what, Kay, what is an apple? And she said, I don't want to be doing this. And then she said, <laughs> I want to go outside. And, but after they get through that, before she really said any other descriptors, um, she said, it's something you eat. Uh -huh. And I think that would fall within this category where these things are anchored by what they look like and what we do to them, mm -hmm. right? And Rather than uh, by the category. Exactly. Yeah, which is more yeah, complex. So the fact that you can um, make these observations is exciting because it's not all that long that we've been able to see inside brains while humans are alive. <laughs> um, 
So talk to us a little bit about that evolution, because what works, the reason we're excited about this conversation with you is because the evolution in neuroscience we think is influencing um, education. And so it, I think it'd be great to hear about how quickly neuroscience has evolved because of the technology that's available. Sure. So um, that's a big part of why, um, you know, not too many years ago, you couldn't have the field that I'm in. Right. I, and when I first started studying to do this, it was a, it was, a, I wasn't sure I could end up doing it um, because these tools are really important. Right. Um, so a lot of the changes that have happened have been technology changes in these non-invasive imaging modalities. Um, the first big one was really PET scanning, positron emission tomography. And that was largely developed in St. Louis. And it was the first series of papers, you know, in, in high-profile journals where they could show we can localize cognitive operations in the human brain. And that was mind-blowing to me as a young student. Um, and, but the way that PET works is it requires ionizing radiation. So, um, which isn't good for you, which is not good for you. Yeah. You have to pay people, you know, volunteers a lot to be exposed to some radiation, um, which I've done these studies myself. Um, but you wouldn't want to do too many of them and you definitely wouldn't want to do them in children. Um, unless there was a really, you know, heavily motivated medical reason, right? Mm -hmm. um, so specifically with regard to learning about child brain development, pet studies didn't go very far. We learned some things through studies where they had, you know, children had brain tumors or epilepsy, and medically you could motivate using pet scans to learn something about their treatment. And then while they were in there, we would do some little experiments, right? So the next technology was MRI, and the, the, that was the biggest breakthrough for child development because uh, MRI scanners were already being used actually for, for quite a while, a couple decades, to look at the structure of the brain. And then in the early 90s, several labs basically at the same time figured out how to basically program a regular old MRI scanner to measure brain activity. Oh, not just structure, but activity. Exactly. So, so rather than just look looking at you know a particular structure like the hippocampus and seeing what its shape looks like and its size, um, was it active during a particular period of time? So this was a breakthrough because this um, didn't require ionizing radiation. You could do this on a regular old MRI scanner, which which are non-invasive and and quite safe. Right? Yeah, except for they're noisy and dark and scary. That's right. They're they're annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's right. So um, the other reason this was a big deal, because for those of us in cognitive neuroscience, it was a scalable thing because MRI scanners were already out there. Right. Right. At, at most hospitals, at most medical centers. So the equipment was there. So when you're talking about this sort of work, you're, you're talking about being able to see where thoughts go in the brain. Right. And so when, when we're, t our concern is about getting kids to read, right? Getting yep. them, making sure they're comfortable when they're in first, second, third grade so that they are set up for success, right? So what happens in the brain when, when a kid is learning to read and is succeeding and, and, and using reading to, to learn at that point? Like what is, what is so fundamental about reading in, in, in a scientific way? That's a great question. So as you can imagine with these potentially powerful tools, what we've been able to do is characterize the normal developmental progression of the, the reading learning process, right? So we've, you know, I, I talked about experiments I've done focusing on word meanings. Well, reading is partly that, that relates to comprehension, but, but there's, there are different aspects of reading and a big part of reading, I think the essence of reading is essentially knowing which sounds are mapped to which squiggles, right? Mm -hmm. Which letters. Um, and so imaging has also allowed us to break down these processes and, and we actually know quite a bit about that. And we even know about the differences in the brain um, between say a five-year-old who's a budding reader and a 35-year-old who's a budding reader. And I've actually taught such individuals in, in classes that focus on adult literacy. And a lot of times you're working with uh, adults who have, you know, very unique backgrounds. They, they just, you know, and sometimes you're working with people who, who have 
uh, frank disabilities and things. But uh, but the process is quite different, right, because of the developmental phase you're in. Um, so what we've we, we we've characterized sort of what we think uh, happens in the brain during successful reading acquisition. And what we've begun to do now is compare those successes with um, children at similar phases of development who are having trouble. So we've pinpointed areas in the brain that appear not to, they might be, you know, you can think of them as just not doing what the brain's typically doing. So um, I had the wonderful um, experience of hearing P Dr. Patricia Cool from University of Washington a few months back at a conference up in Sacramento, and she described some, a, a relatively new discovery about what's going on in brains as kids are getting ready to read. And she made a forecast that um, we want to play her, that part of her speech sure. for you and have you um, tell us more about what she's talking about and what your level of optimism is about it. First of all, though, can you define the word arcuate? Uh, right. So... Um, the ar the arcuate fasciculus. I assume she's referring to the arcuate fasciculus. Um, you have one on either side of your brain, mm -hmm. and there are these long fiber tract pathways, and they're white matter fiber pathways. So they they're basically the highways of information that connect um, different regions of your brain. The arcuate fasciculus uh, on on both sides of your brain um, they've been implicated heavily in language processing but mostly on the left hemisphere um, because in the mature brain, when you speak, when you're listening and comprehending spoken words, um, you're most heavily relying on the left hemisphere in most people. There are some differences, but um, so they're usually referring to the left arcuate fasciculus and it's this, it's an information highway. And then interestingly enough, um, it connects posterior regions at the back of your head to anterior regions, regions at the front and we also think it's have it's really important in these developmental changes that I've talked about. Well, let's listen to what her prediction is then about what you might be able to learn as we are able to study this even more. Okay. The arcuate is very critical for learning to read. If you measure the arcuate and its growth, you can predict when a child is ready to read, ready to learn to read. You know, we've been saying that kids should read all at the same time. And we've been acting as though every brain is the same. And when a child doesn't read, we act as if something's wrong with Johnny. Something's wrong with his home. Something's wrong with Johnny. Johnny can't read. The truth is Johnny's timing is not the same as Sally's and Fred's. What Jason has shown is that if this arcuate has already formulated, it's done its growing, when reading instruction comes in, it's too late. On the other hand, if it's not started its growth and reading instruction comes in, it's too early. There's a perfect timing for every child. As the arcuate is growing, if reading instruction comes in, it's like magic. It really, really develops. It takes. So I want to plant the idea that what we're heading to over the next decade is something called personalized neuroscience. And every child will have the benefit of this. You know the phrase personalized medicine. We know all of our livers are different, our colons are different, and our, our needs are different with regard to how we eat and how we sleep. We've, we've come to our doctors to say, give me a formula that will be best for me. I want to be the healthiest I can be. We should feel the same way about children's brains. We will be able to give advice that's not cookie cutter advice. Every child does this at three, every child does that at five, every child does this at seven. Reading has been contentious since day one. We're going to find that reading can be optimized in every child by understanding how the critical circuitry in the brain that's responsible for reading is developing in that child. So not today, but within five years, certainly within 10, the kinds of measurements we're taking with big machines will be made with simple sensors. We'll have known where in the brain is that activity taking place and what does it look like. Then with simple sensors that you could put on the scalp, we'd be able to, to measure these kinds of things in offices, maybe even in schools someday. So I think we can look forward to the kind of learning that would benefit every child, that we should think about every child being able to read. 
and every child being able to reach their potential. So Tim, before you answer, I just have to tell you that I've been to a bunch of conferences over the past few years, and this was the most exciting thing I've ever heard at a conference. So be <laughs> careful before you burst my bubble. I thought that this potential for using neuroscience to be able to personalize learning for kids, teaching learning for kids was Wow, mind-blowingly exciting! So, but, go, but feel free to burst your bubble. Go ahead, and burst if it if it needs bursting. Go ahead, but I just wanted to. No, so I I completely agree with Dr. Cool, and that's you know this is an area I'm very interested in, and it's one of the reasons I got into the field. And and um, I don't want to burst your bubble because I I believe I believe it too. I I I'm a bit of a skeptic about um how long it might take us. And, and how hard this is, but you know, but but that's I I think we can do this. It, it's interesting. Um, um, just a, if you don't mind, a, a brief a brief thing about this particular effect. I think it's particularly interesting because um, it relates to some of my early research findings. So there's a the, the arcuate has a place in my heart <laughs> because um, when she's talking about this work that, that Jason Yateman did, it is excellent work and very important. Um, one of the things he has found about the arcuate is um, the diffusion properties, which is basically an imaging measure we have. Um, people, scientists think it relates strongly to the amount of myelination, which is on this arcuate, this, this cable, if you will. And myelination is sort of like insulation around a wire. So um, in Jason's work, he's shown that, you know, kids who are in a developmental phase where they have more myelin on the arcuate, that seems to be when they start to enter this phase that Dr. Cool is talking about where they're most receptive mm. to learning reading. This is really neat for me because this is exactly the kind of thing we're looking for. And it's also neat because it might explain some of the things that I described earlier about this This highway might be one of the major ways by which the representations of words in the spoken realm. is So kids have a lot of spoken language before they begin to read, right? Yep. And then they have to map those those letter patterns onto a lot of things they already know, you know, in their brains, right? They have the concepts. So that I think is really neat because the arcuate might actually be uh, intimately involved in moving words oh, forward. That, that in we were that talking. mapping process. Exactly. Let me ask you, so when we hear about this stuff about what parts of the brain are being affected or all that, are we talking about potentially changing the brain or about adjusting things to to what we understand about it? Do you know what I mean? Like, is Would the approach or the next step be about about impacting or, or readjusting that wiring somehow or about simply just customizing to it? That's a great question. I, you know, um, I think the best answer is that part of what we're learning is there are the individual differences across kids are wide and we're, we're getting a, a better characterization of this. And on some level we know this, right? Um, but, one of my hopes is to use neuroscience measures to maybe characterize this better in an individual child. And so perhaps in theory, we haven't done a great job of this yet, but it feels like we're close, as Dr. Cool thinks as well, um, that if we had information, say, about this particular seven-year-old girl who was having trouble reading, we might look at, for example, the myelin structure of her arcuate, and we might actually find that it's a little, it's lagging for her age. So I think um, that information might inform us about how we approach instruction for that child. We might decide, you know, maybe her developmental phase is still a little bit young or immature, and, and we won't worry as much about her. We also may tailor some of her instructions toward what we think uh, her phase is, right? We may say, well, we have every reason to believe when this starts to, this part of the brain starts to grow more and catch up with her peers that she'll pick up this cognitive skill, right? So I think that's a big part of it. The implementation of that individualized education is much trickier within yeah. education, right? Right? You may have thirty-two children, one one teacher, but but that is what we're after. Um, we're after, I think, more information about particular children that that helps us understand maybe why they're good at certain things, mm -hmm. maybe why they're struggling at certain things, and that may help us plan their education. Well. 
I mean, I, I, I feel like we're on a pathway. We are on a pathway in education towards more personalization generally, most of it not related to our knowledge about a kid's brain, but more about their skills and abilities that they're demonstrating mm-hmm. because technology is enabling us to start to um, customize instruction for kids in a way that we just weren't able to until personal devices became more ubiquitous very, very recently. So that helps me to feel, you know, raises my level of confidence that once the technology in your field is ready, that we'll have, uh, what would you say, like technologies on the education side to be able to capitalize on it. Yeah. And that's right. And, you know, and you heard Dr. Cool refer to, um, um, you know, mobile uh, sensors, you know, and that, that is, we, we, I don't envision a case where we have an MRI scanner at every grade school <laughs> and we're, you know, um, moving kids into it to learn about their brains. Um, um, but we do have a, um, a very big increase in the, in the sensors that people are developing on the technical side. Um, electrophysiology sensors are getting very tiny, like other electronics, right? Because with the chip technologies, they're getting smaller, they're getting lighter. You can use Bluetooth now. You can have basically a plastic headset um, that I could bring to a classroom. We could put it on a child and calibrate it within about 90 seconds now, which is unheard of. We used to have to spend, I used to spend 45 minutes um, putting, pasting one at a time, you know, 80 electrodes to a child's head and scraping their scalp with a, with a toothpick and pasting, you know, it's, and by the time you get it set up, the child may or may not be ready to continue, right? Yeah. Um, so those kinds of things are really important, and we're hoping to do exactly some of those kind of studies, bringing EEG headsets to classrooms. Um, so there is that, and a pr- lot of progress is being made. To, to get to the bubble bursting side. <laughs> okay, um, lay it on me. <laughs> there's, I think, a part of this that a lot of people underestimate how difficult it is is more of a conceptual thing. It seems so tantalizingly close to so many of us that, that we could, particularly using neuroscientific information to inform education policy and practice. And some of us feel like um, it's not to be negative, it just... Um, there was a conceptual breakdown, and I think it has to do with the way we derive information from scientific research is often at a unit that's not very usable in education. For example, a lot of our research studies, we use group analyses, and we can, using statistics, show, well, um, you know, on average, um, children who have reading troubles at age six aren't using a region of the cortex called the fusiform gyrus in the left hemisphere, and we can show that this is quite well known. It's, it seems to be a region in visual processing areas that has a lot to do with, with mapping letter forms and discriminating letter forms. So the story makes sense. The studies have been replicated, and most of us who are right-handed uh, readers, this gyrus is doing a, a beautiful job and it's really important in our reading process. And we can show in kids where reading breaks down, it's, it's different. It's either not active, as active, um, or its structure is different. Um, so that's, you know, we have that knowledge that's now. That's real. That's very real. And it's incontrovertible. And we don't have a lot of those either, right? We're still... Mm-hmm. Now, if I take that to a classroom, um, you know, it's hard to apply that, right? It's maybe maybe there's a, a brain training um, program that we could develop that would work that cortical region, you know, almost like a muscle or something. That's not uh, impossible. But then particularly for a particular child, right, even if we do take a child and we show that her fusiform gyrus on the left is not doing what it's supposed to, you understand what I'm saying? There's this sort of analytical conceptual breakdown where we feel like we know all these things in scientific research side. But when I talk with teachers and things, I mean, they, they, and they want help too, right? We, we really want to help each other. It's tough. Um, yeah, I can see that. What are they supposed to do with that? Yeah. Is what you're basically saying. Yeah. And, and, and the other point I, I, you know, hurry to make is there are some children who are really good readers who aren't using the fusiform very much. <laughs> and as you pointed out, right, who kind of cares, right? If they're, if they're good readers, um, you know, cause brains really are different. And, and some of them, even our research shows 
on a population level, the left fusiform is is really in most people. This is it's really important. But uh, a chunk of them, maybe 12%, are really excellent readers, and they're doing it a different way. Um, that's not a problem. One of the things I've you you triggered something for me when you first started talking when you used the term sensory processing. And one of the things I've learned about a lot lately is is sensory processing and sensory processing disorder and other things that young kids are dealing with. In some respects, it seems like some kids are just overwhelmed by the amount of information and, and noises and sights that they're seeing and feelings and inability to process some of those feelings. So what what is going on in the brain when that's happening? And, and what's making some kids sort of out of sync with others on that? Yeah, it sensory processing disorder, it may, I've always thought of it, it's, it may, the name itself might be a little misleading because the way I think about it, it, it they certainly have sensory deficits. Mm -hmm. But to me, one of the big characteristics has this emotional side, right? And we in the brain, we think of that as being this pretty high-level thing. Mm -hmm. um, we might even call it a frontal cortex thing, right? And which, which is uh, anatomically removed from the, the primary sensory regions like touch, smell, you know, um, taste, vision, hearing, those are, um, those are kind of the very first way stations in the brain that receive information from the outside. Um, but, but they, they definitely, it, it brings to me about an interesting question. If you have a child who has a deficit in, in a so-called lower brain region, I really think there's pretty good evidence to expect cascading negative effects, right? So what I mean by that is um, this has been actually shown in, in dyslexia is a lot of kids with dyslexia, even in experiments where you're playing simple tones to them, they have real trouble with tone discriminations. Hmm. And so what it suggests is, is early in the processing stream in the brain, um, something at the sensory level is not getting mapped very well such that they can discriminate between tones um, like other kids can. And, and then if you think about discriminating really complex tones, you know, like speech, right? Speech is very rich. It has all these subtleties. It has ups and downs. Um, if you can't make those discriminations, then you probably really will have trouble mapping sounds onto letters because you may not, if you're not perceiving those differences to begin with. Um, and that's consistent with sensory processing disorders is there seem to be these cascading effects. On the positive side, for the same reason, some of us feel like if you can capture some of these problems early, you might be able to develop programs that help kids that will have, you know, cascading positive effects. Mm -hmm. And that's also been um, shown in auditory processing disorders. It, um, there are individual differences. It doesn't work for all kids. But with certain targeted training programs that just focus on these low-level um, sound discrimination tasks, it has been shown some kids get better. They become better readers. They become better speakers. Nice. So we have a lot of interest um, on this podcast in equity and achievement gaps. And one of the most powerful um, findings and, and work that's happening in neuroscience that is affecting education is understanding how trauma and trauma that often comes with poverty has an impact on the growing brain. So can you talk a little bit about, about that and what you see as um, some of the frontiers and most interesting work that's being done in that area would be? Sure. I'm, I, um, it's an area I'm very interested in, but I'm kind of new to studying it myself. Um, it does appear that early negative experiences really, they have a strong effect on the brain that, that seems to, and on cognitive development, that that's a particularly big setback. Um, I think the research would suggest we're still learning about the brain regions that are involved and about sort of the functional neuroanatomy of, of trauma in childhood in particular. Um, and I think one of the big controversies is whether a single event can change the brain 
in such a lasting way, right? And there are different camps about this. Some people really think with an inadequately traumatic event, you can essentially rewire the young brain mm -hmm. and it can take years to kind of wire it back or fix it in a way. I think that's conceivable, quite frankly. Um, you know, the, if you know about, it's amazing what our, we take for, for granted that our brains do, right? I mean, we're, we're born without visual information, without auditory information. And it's, it's, to me, it's nothing short of miraculous when you see a two-year-old just go into the, the, the word, the word explosion where they just start naming it. Yeah. It's, it's crazy it's amazing, to me. This yeah. is, you know, it's, it's still crazy to me. And I feel like I understand at least part of it. <laughs> um, so I think, particularly at young ages, the brain is very plastic. It's very malleable, right? There's, we've written papers where we call it sort of the, the blooming, you know, the blossoming brain. It's kind of the flowering period of the, the brain. And what we mean by that is there's these dynamic processes that are going on. They're going on at a faster rate in the young brain. And, um, and they kind of slow down over time. If you look at metabolic rates like the glucose or the oxygen that the brain uses, say in preschool, compared to those of us in, in adulthood, um, you know, it's something on the order of four times the, the metabolic demand. So it's, it's this, it's sort of springtime in the brain. Mm -hmm. And I, the way I think of it is those processes affect change in a more powerful way. So the effects that experience has at the young, in the young brain, I think you can expect it, the effect to be bigger and longer lasting. Hmm. Well, we should let you go. It's um, uh, getting that time. But before I do, what kinds of predictions might you have about things that might come online, things we might learn soon? What's the paper you're waiting to see get published that you, that you think is probably on the horizon, that sort of thing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I'm, I'm definitely interested in education. I would love to see sort of the field of childhood neuroscience um, either – we need, we need all, all levels. We need new discoveries. We also have some discoveries that we're unsure how to implement. Um, but I, what I would really like to see and I think will be necessary for the kinds of – um, changes we talked about before and the kinds of changes that Dr. Cool and her, her recording was referring to. I think we have to change the way we're doing research and the way we're asking questions. And I think in particular with regard to education, I would love to see more close collaborative research efforts between educators and cognitive neuroscientists because I think it's easy for us to operate in parallel and we on the scientific side think we're we're studying interesting things, but I, you know, um, it's not going to happen where we we increase an understanding and then just hand it down to educators. Educators are going to have to tell us what their their most important issues are. They're going to have to tell us what to study, what problems to solve. It's going to be back and forth, and then it'll it'll have to be like I said, an ongoing collaboration. So I think. Changing those structures of how we approach those things will lead to true breakthroughs where we're using the science in a better way um, in education and, and particularly to personalize education in a way that in medicine they're trying to do as well. So, well, you've recently launched uh, the, a new journal of educational neuroscience with the chair of the Department of Education Studies at UCSD, yeah. a national peer-reviewed journal. So hopefully you're creating a forum where that kind of interaction between the educators and the neuroscientists can can blossom that's right yeah well well it feels like we're at the dawn of all of this so it's cool to have somebody who's right there uh, at it so thanks for coming in Tim. thank you very much 